following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. For those that are visitors, my name is Isaac. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Uh, I am a fill-in this morning. I'm um, quite uh, taller and actually a little bit more handsome than the guy that's usually up here. So, um, oh man, he, he won't listen to this recording, so I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, but it is, it is good to be here, and it's, it's pretty exciting to have the opportunity to talk with you, because on those infrequent times when, when I can come up and, and uh, just share with you my heart, I get to pick the passage that I want and just jump in, and, and hopefully you'll find some encouragement as I walk through this this morning. We're actually going to be looking at James chapter 1, um, so you can open your Bibles up with me, James chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. James 1, 1 through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, the chance that we have to open up your word. And I pray that we would find comfort, that we would find rest within these pages. And and Father, encourage our hearts this morning. I know there's brokenness and there's hurting and there's pain. I pray as we talk this morning and, and hear what you have to share with us that we would be open to Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So we all go through difficult times in our life, challenges, hardships. All of us do. In fact, it was about two or three weeks ago that a really good friend of mine came to me and just told me, actually it was through text because he had to leave, that his mother-in-law passed away. It was um, sudden completely unexpected. She didn't have any medical issues at all. She was early 60s, total surprise to the family, and she was just gone. She was sitting in a chair and just passed away. And so he talked with me later after they got back from the funeral, and and he'd been trying to think through how he can encourage his wife through that hard time, and I can attest to that on a, on a personal nature. And and then it was actually this last Friday that he said, hey, Isaac, um, I've really been encouraged by the first chapter of James. I'm like, no way. That's what I'm going to be talking about on Sunday. So we were able to walk through that and encourage each other and, and share what was on our hearts. And I know that there are those in the room today that have experienced hardships just like that. And maybe it's not exactly that, but maybe it's financial struggles or Maybe it's a problem with a coworker, or um, 
I mean, the list really goes on. And this morning, I'm excited to talk with you and talk about the first chapter of James. I, I pray that you will leave encouraged, that you will be challenged and refreshed by the word this morning. Before we jump into the, to the text, I want to talk about a couple of the key features that we find in James. So the author and the title, um, it comes from James. Actually, the title comes from the author, James the Just, who was the brother of Jesus. And he was one of the leaders in the early Jewish church. And the theme, the primary theme we see throughout the book, um, talks about the importance of living out one's faith, being a doer of the word and not just to hear. Actually putting into practice the things that you know in your head and not just keeping them in theory. Um, The reason for this theme, there's actually social conflict happening in the church between the rich and poor, and there's also a spiritual conflict that's tied to that as well. Uh, Their worldliness and challenges um, that they're facing, they need divine wisdom to be able to walk through those difficulties and problems um, and become right with God. The purpose, occasion, and background, audience, Jewish Christians, um, and they actually are part of a house church, an early house church um, outside of Palestine. So conflict has entered into the church. It's begun to splinter them. And they've turned into two fighting factions. And James has written this epistle to really try to uh, confront that and walk through that with them. So there's kind of the context. Here's what you, that's what you can expect from the book as a whole. And so this morning in the first 11 verses, this is really one of my all-time favorites, as I mentioned before. And I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, On a regular basis, for me, it's been encouraging and supportive, but not just that, it's also been sharpening and rebuking for me personally. So let's jump in and talk about it. So the major emphasis we find in these first 11 verses is that genuine faith will prove itself in the midst of trials, whatever the nature or source of those troubles may be. And it's for this reason that this epistle is so valuable for the believer and the non-believer. It's especially true for the unbeliever who considers himself a Christian and needs to recognize that faith that is reliable only when things are going well is not true saving faith. We're going to talk about four major ideas this morning. An attitude of joy, an understanding mind, a heart that believes And finally, a spirit of humility. So look with me at verse 1. It opens up by talking about um, the author of the book, James. And it's interesting, even though he's a half-brother of Jesus, it does not describe it that way. He doesn't open up, this is what I would probably do, say, hey, this is Isaac, brother of Jesus. Just kind of pause there, let that sink in. No, in fact, he says, this is James, a servant. So the description of himself is much different than one might think. He describes himself as a servant, one who is totally deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the control of his master. That's how he opens the book. And then as we move into verse 2, we're going to start talking about an attitude of joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy is not the normal response when you're going through trials. As Christians, we're under a divine command, not simply to be somewhat joyful, but as you can see here, it has all joy. 
So a common interpretation of this would be unmixed joy, complete joy, uh, total joy, sheer joy. And it's unique to the Christian. One that Jesus gives to his children when they willingly and uncomplainingly endure troubles while trusting in him. God always uses those troubles for our benefit and for his glory. It's not some, as Chris mentioned, it's not some sort of religious masochism, but rather a sincere trust in the promise and goodness of our Lord. We can look at those trials, and it's odd to say this, but we can look at trials as a welcome friend. And knowing, just like Joseph, that what we may have been meant, what may have been meant for evil, God has meant for good. Sometimes I think it's easy to give off a pretense of being joyful. This is a, I'm talking about a conscious determination by the believer. This is something that as a believer you choose. And in our house, we've got this entire wall that's painted in this black um, substance that you can write chalk on. Chalk wall, I guess they probably call that. Um, And on it, Annika has written in huge, bold letters, choose joy. And actually, it's funny, I've been into some of your houses and I see that same huge lettering on there. Not only is this something that we choose, but it's also commanded by God. And within the ability of all those who are believers and under the provision of the Spirit's working, when there is genuine faith in Christ Jesus, James assures us that even in the worst trouble, we can rejoice and we can give thanks to God. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kind... As I mentioned at the beginning, the audience that James is specifically addressing is Jewish believers. And he's really looking to get their attention in this verse. He says, hey, listen, when you run into trials, that's going to happen. It's not an if or you might, this could happen. No, it's when you run into those trials, they're meant to test our faith. And we have regular trials that we face, don't we? Trials in our marriage, parental trials, no matter how old we are, whenever I listen to some of the trials that my kids talk about, sometimes it comes across to me as, eh, this is a little bit trivial for me, but you know what? I need to consider the fact that we all have trials, no matter how young I'm talking to my daughter or how old we are, we all have trials that we face. Let's keep going. So in verse 3, we see an understanding mind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. No. So this carries the idea of full understanding. It's not merely a factual knowledge that we have, but it carries also a personal experience. When James uses the word testing, although it's a different word than trials, from the previous verse, it has a very similar meaning. In fact, both are used to test something to see if it is genuine, if it is valid. And then there's a, the idea of steadfastness or endurance to be able to continue on. Those times whenever you just look at it and say, oh, I don't know if I can do it. 
It's like a runner that just keeps running and keeps going and endures. This endurance has a permanent quality and an inner strength which increases each time we have a, a, a trial that we're facing. Jesus allows us to patiently and trustingly endure. He allows us to do these things. And I'm going to, as we look at Psalm 40, 1 to 2, David said, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And then in Corinthians, we see no temptation has overtaken you, but such is is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with that temptation provide a way of escape that you can bear it. The Lord will not allow his children to face anything that they can't. A new believer, in fact, most believers more than likely will not face the same things that the Apostle Paul faced. But should we have those trials, God will give us the strength and the endurance to be able to walk through that. We don't know what the future holds, especially in the next three days. As we think about our future as a country, but we're thankful that Jesus holds even that in his hands. And we can trust that. And it's interesting, this morning, um, Annika was looking at a, a video of Stephen Curtis Chapman. He just wrote a song um, thinking about the election and all of the things that are happening, that are coming up. And really, the focus of that song is, Jesus is still on the throne. And we can trust that. We can believe that. Let's look now at a heart that believes in verses 4 through 8, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways." The only way out of a trial is through it. You see, in this passage, the Lord does not give us tips on how we can go around trials or how we can cut corners through them. You won't find that in Scripture. In fact, He is always with us and will always guide us in the face of trials. The challenge is to be able to rejoice in the face of those troubles knowing that our gracious Father is using them not to harm us, but rather to strengthen us, to perfect us. Take a look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see the need for godly understanding, especially when we're going through trials. Believers need a special measure of understanding to help them through, and that need should drive us to ask God to supply his understanding, to supply his wisdom. I don't know how many times Stacy has said from this very spot, he said, we need him to be our wisdom because our wisdom on, on its own is nothing. He needs to be our wisdom. The same applies here. <clears throat> our wisdom is not sufficient 
and we desperately need his help. So speaking of wisdom, we look at Solomon, who is pretty wise. Here's what he said. You know, whenever you read something from Solomon, it might, my first thought might be, yeah, he's got it figured out. He'll probably have something about, here's what he can offer to us. Well, here's what he does offer. He offers us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding in all our ways to acknowledge him and he will direct our path. He then goes on to say about wisdom that her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. Then we see later in the epistle of James that God's heavenly wisdom will be described as first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. It should go without saying that trial should enhance our prayer life. As we turn to the Lord for guidance, strength, and patience, and wisdom, James assures us that far from being miserly in dispensing that gracious gift to his kids that God gives to all generously and without reproach, it's his loving desire to impart divine understanding abundantly to his faithful saints. This has got to be one of the most beautiful and I would say encouraging promises in all of Scripture. One that on numerous occasions has encouraged me personally in the midst of trials and hardships. We're instructed to ask God. This is not just personal advice, but rather an imperative. This is something you need to do. A divine command making our calling in the Lord for wisdom not optional. Although the Lord has an abundance of wisdom, we see that in Romans, and is certainly willing to impart this wisdom much more so than we are willing to ask. He nevertheless expects for us to ask. It's not something that the Lord will impress on an unwilling heart or mind. In Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. We are exhorted to call upon his name. And he promises that whatever we ask in his name, that he will do it so that the Father may be glorified in his Son. This promise is reinforced when he says again, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. God does not just give, but he gives generously. This concept carries the idea of doing something unconditionally, without bargaining. The only condition here is that we ask. When we simply come in our trials to God asking for his help and wisdom, he immediately and single mindedly gives to us generously. We can see this in Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will not give him a A snake, will he? If you then, 
being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Without reluctance, without hesitance, without reservation, his divine wisdom will be given to us in generous abundance. He will say to us, in effect, what he said to the people of Israel, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. James then turns from the willing father to the waiting child. And he makes it clear that the Lord requires the right kind of asking, which must be in faith with no doubting. In other words, it must be faith that is genuine in the character and person of God, just like a child. Some Christians will simply doubt that God will give them what they need. Have you been there? I know I have. And rationalize those doubts in many different ways. They believe that they are undeserving, which is true, but as we've already discussed, irrelevant. Or they may think that their needs are not worthy of God's attention, which is also true, but irrelevant. For in his boundless grace and love, he sovereignly chooses to take great interest in things that, well, in the grand scheme of things, seem utterly insignificant. Then there are other questions where we look to dispute with God or we wonder why has he allowed this calamity to happen in the first place or why doesn't he provide a way out that we might, that we might think. Well, the request that does not take God at his word that doubts either his ability or his trustworthiness is presumptuous and worthless and is an affront. And we know that without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The believer who doubts, however, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Living by the beach and going to the beach frequently, I see this all the time. Usually it's my kids, it might be a red flag day, they're out on boogie boards or just walking into the water and they get pummeled, just thrown. And usually it's Piper that comes up coughing and sputtering with spitting out salt water and sand, but she gets back up and jumps back in again and she just gets thrown again. You're getting the word picture, you're seeing it here, you're feeling it? Well, that's what the author is trying to do. He's trying to get our attention to say, hey, this is very picturesque. I want you to be able to see this and understand it. It's a very vivid picture of how so often we are foolish and do not believe our requests will be honored by God. The tragic part of this is that the person who is tossed back and forth, there is danger here. And the danger is as we see in Ephesians, that they may very well be carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the tricks of men and the craftiness and deceitful scheming. Not trusting God will lead from bad to worse. Such a person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Simply put, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. When this man goes through trials, he turns to human resources rather than God, the God who made heaven and earth, or he becomes bitter and resentful and seeks no help at all. He does not renounce God, but often acts 
as if God doesn't exist and doesn't care or isn't capable of delivering from trouble and trial. But as James points out later in the letter, that person's problem, of course, is sin. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he admonishes, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Regardless of how we, he may view himself, the double-minded person is trying to serve more than one God. There's two masters that he's trying to serve. In the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, written by Paul Bunyan's brother, John, it calls this type of man... Mr. Facing Both Ways. This feat is both spiritually and physically impossible. You can't do that. You can't have both. You can't ride the fence on this one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now let's look at a spirit of humility. This is the final piece that we're going to talk about this morning. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, the flowers fall, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. So James first is addressing the economically poor, those that are struggling financially. And actually, this was a large number in the early church because they'd been persecuted so greatly that many of their possessions had been ripped from them. Some of them had no place to go. They didn't have a home. They didn't have any way to be able to pay for anything because they didn't have any money. Some of them had been confiscated. Others had been forced to leave and they were in poverty. Even though their circumstances were hard, such a believer was to still boast in his exaltation. The word boast can also be interpreted as glory or rejoice. That is hard to do. Let me rejoice in this. In, in what's happening in life right now, let me rejoice in this. Well, this boasting, we can boast. We can boast in what Christ has done. And that's a legitimate form of pride. Often we talk about uh, boasting in a negative way, but this is something we can boast in his exaltation, not our own. There's countless blessings that this position brings. He may be considered the scum of the world or the dregs of society, but in God's eyes, he is exalted. He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He might be thirsty, but he has the water of life to satisfy. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has been eternally received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious home in heaven. When God in his wisdom and sovereignty takes away physical possessions from some of his kids, it's for the purpose of making them spiritually mature. A blessing infinitely more valuable than anything they have lost or have wanted but never possessed. In his carnation, the Lord promised, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. James then presents the other side of the coin. Just as materially poor believers should rejoice in their spiritual riches, the material rich in his humiliation. The idea here is that the believer 
who is materially well-off, healthy, or otherwise physically blessed should rejoice when trials come, for they teach them the transitory nature of those material things. But both he and his possessions are like a flower of the grass. What happens to the flower of the grass? It fades away, doesn't it? Because men, including believers, have a natural tendency to trust in material things. And James talks about this. He gives special attention and warns about the dangers of wealth. Expanding on the temporary nature of those physical things that we have. This is also a very picturesque example of how Israel flourished and flowered in the months of February and dried up then in May. James borrows this imagery from Isaiah 40. This loss of material things is meant to drive a rich person to Jesus and to greater spiritual maturity and blessing and satisfaction and that the, and that the point, the rich and poor, they're exactly like neither the material possessions or the lack of them is of any consequence. What is of significance is a trusting relationship with the Lord who showers all of his children with spiritual wealth that won't diminish, that won't fail, and it will fully satisfy. Faith in Christ to supply his needs lifts the lowly believer beyond his trials into the great height of a position in the eternal kingdom of Christ. Where as God's child, he is rich and he can rejoice, he can boast. Faith in Christ is does an equal blessed thing for the rich believer whose richness is temporary. It fills him with a spirit of lowliness and humility. As the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets his earthly riches. The two are equal in faith in Christ. So when you lose somebody that you deeply care about, whether it's a daughter, a son, a wife, a husband, Wealth is of no comfort. It's really of no consequence. When you lose your health, you're betrayed by your friends, those that are closest to you, or wrongfully accused of something. Money cannot buy peace of mind or comfort, or it can't do anything for the pain that you're experiencing. Trials are the great equalizer bringing all of God's children to dependence on Him. And wealth does not bring anyone closer to God, neither does being poor push you away from God. In light of that truth in the present text, the beautiful and well-known passage that we find in Hebrews, I'm going to modify it a little bit. Here's what it says. Therefore, let us draw near with equal confidence to the throne of grace so that we may equally receive mercy and equally find grace to help in time of need. So in conclusion, Jesus uses trials in our lives to bring us closer to himself. Through those dark, challenging days, he desires that we trust that his plan is best, that his plan is right. We may not always know the why, but the hardest part is that more often than not, it's, it's not for us to know the why. Riches can come and go. As we go through this week, no matter what you face, choose joy. Maybe you need to write that on your mirror or 
write yourself a three by five card or make a chalk wall to put choose joy on. And be reminded that we have a generous father who takes care of his kids. In closing, I'm going to read a passage from a book called Valley of Vision, which is a compilation of Puritan prayers and devotions. So just listen in as I read. Sovereign commander of the universe, I am sadly harassed by doubts, fears, unbelief in a felt spiritual darkness. My heart is full of evil and I cannot act faith at all. My heavenly pilot has disappeared and I've lost hold of the rock of ages. I sink in deep mire beneath storms and waves in horror and distress unutterable. Help me, O Lord, to throw myself absolutely and wholly on you for better, for worse, without comfort and all but hopeless. Give me peace of soul, confidence, enlargement of mind, morning joy that comes after a night heaviness. Water my soul richly with divine blessings. Grant that I may welcome your humbling in private so I might enjoy you in public. Give me a mountaintop as high as the valley is low. Your grace can melt the worst sinner, and I am as vile as he. Yet you have made me a monument of mercy, a trophy of redeeming power. In my distress, let me not forget this, all-wise God. You never, your never-failing providence orders every event, sweetens every fear, reveals evil's presence lurking in seeming good, brings real good out of seeming evil, makes unsatisfactory what I set my heart upon to show what a short-sighted creature I am and to teach me to live by faith upon your blessed self. Out of my soul and night, give me the name Naphtali, satisfied with favor. Help me to love you as your child and to walk worthy of my heavenly pedigree. Let's pray. Father, this morning... I'm thankful for the opportunity that we had to look at your word. And I know, Father, even in this room, there's folks going through so many challenges and difficulties, struggles that maybe some of us will never even know about outside of themselves and you. And, and I pray that we would find our rest in you, that we would find our peace in you, that we would choose joy that we would ask you for your wisdom because we need it desperately. And we know that you are a generous father who gives to his children. So this morning, I'm so thankful for that. And I pray that our reliance would be on you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.